Well, good morning. Happy Mother's Day to all of you, especially the mothers. Um, my uh, two-year-old son, whose name is Jack, was running down the hallway on Wednesday of this week, and he tripped and fell, and he smashed his lip into the floor. He had a big, fat lip that uh, looks a little better now, but it looked pretty bad then. And the next day, on Thursday, my wife comes to a women's group, a mom's group, actually, that meets here at the church, and the kids come, too, and so the kids played over in the toddler room. And uh, Hannah Epley, who was up here, we just prayed, her grandmother, whose name is Therese, sometimes volunteers to watch the kids and help with that, and she did on, on this particular day. Well, later, when I saw my son, I said, hey, Jack, you know, how was the toddler room today? And he beamed with this big smile, and the first thing he said was, Hannah's grandmother prayed for my lip. (laughs) And uh, that meant a lot to him. And when I heard that, uh, it meant a lot to me too. Because what Jack was really saying was, somebody cared about me. And this passage, what you have is exactly that. You've got a picture of someone who cares. Now, Jesus interacted with a lot of children during his ministry, but this was one of the times in which he did that that really stood out as being very important and significant. In fact, this was so important that this text that Richard just read for us this morning is recorded in three out of four of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. The only place that you don't find this story is in the book of John. Now, wherever Jesus went, the crowds were sure to follow. Uh, Crowds of people shadowed Jesus, and when people would show up, uh, one thing that's so unique about Jesus is that he was never too busy for them. Jesus would stop what he was doing, and he would give them his time and his attention and Over and over and over again, he would heal the sick who were brought to him. Uh, Most of the time, he would begin to teach them, and the crowds loved to listen to his teaching. And sometimes, if they were really lucky, he'd even send them away with lunch. Jesus fed people on certain occasions. And on this day, we find Jesus happens to be teaching on the topic of marriage and divorce. And the Bible uh, records that as he was doing this, there were people who were bringing their children to Jesus. Now, these people would have been mothers and fathers, and they probably also would have been older brothers and sisters and perhaps friends of the family. But the word here for the children that they brought describes anyone from the age of a baby to somebody who would be like a preteen, okay? So you think of kids in the nursery all the way to kids who are in middle school. And what these parents and families wanted was for Jesus to touch them and to bless them. Now, the disciples weren't too keen on this. Uh, They felt like it was an interruption. They knew that Jesus only had so much time and energy, and what they were trying to do was to protect him. And besides, they felt he's talking about marriage and divorce. It's not exactly fitting for children to be a part of what's happening here. And so the disciples rebuked those who were bringing the children to Jesus. Now, a rebuke is a very stern scolding. It's a reprimand. Hey, they said something like, look, you guys, don't you see that Jesus is a very busy man? 
He's doing a lot more important things than spending time hanging out with a bunch of kids. You'll have to leave. I'm sorry, you need to go. And the passage tells us that when Jesus noticed what they were saying, he was not happy about it at all. In fact, the Bible uses a very specific word. It says that Jesus was indignant. I'm going to come back to what that word means in a moment, but Jesus was not happy, and he said to his disciples, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, this morning, we are in the second week of a series that we've titled Family Ties. And during this series, which is going to happen all this month, we're not so much talking about the ties of a nuclear family. We're talking about the ties of a church family. The idea of the Bible is that churches would function much like a family. And so this place, for those of us who are a part of it, would feel to people like a family away from their family. Some people call a church family the family that you choose. Uh, unlike the family that you don't get to choose, you're just placed in. And so today, what I want to talk about as it comes to children is not so much parenting, although there will be some overlap, but I want to give you sort of a behind-the-scenes look at how we think about children here at Grace, almost our, our philosophy of ministry, what it is that we're trying to do, and how we apply it to children and to other people as well, but specifically this morning to children And what's really great about this passage is that this passage is one of the places in the scriptures where we draw a lot of our thinking as a church out of. And this passage tells us at least three things that Jesus believed with all of his heart. The first was this, that children are of equal value to everyone else. The second is that children should be brought to Jesus not sent someplace else. And the third is that Jesus, excuse me, is that children have a few things to teach us adults too. Okay, those are three things that Jesus is helping us with in this passage. And so let's think about the first one for a second. Children are of equal value to everyone else. Now, if I said to everybody in this room, do you believe that's true? Raise your hand if so. Everybody's hand would go up. However, we don't always practice it. I remember once when I was a younger kid, my parents had a dinner party over at their house, and the the first people to arrive, a couple pulled up the driveway, and I was just sitting there, so I thought, well, I'll go out and say hello and see if they need help carrying some things in, and so I did that, and I remember they loaded me up, you know, with some food out of their trunk, and I walked them up to the front door, up the little walkway, and my parents opened the door and greeted them, and the first thing that this man said to my dad was, He said, all right, let's ditch this kid and have some fun. And I thought to myself, well, you know what? He could have at least waited until I set down the stuff that I was carrying in for him before he insulted me, right? I should have accidentally dropped it. But you see, that reflected a viewpoint and an attitude that that man had about children. For some people, children are of partial value. They're only a percentage of a full person. They kind of sit on the low rung of the ladder. What I think is interesting in our day is that, generally speaking, especially in our culture, teenagers and young adults are worshipped. 
But children oftentimes are treated the opposite. They're demeaned, uh, either by kind of patting them on the head and seeing them more like cute pets, or, as this man, seeing them as kind of an irritation or a nuisance. And what we find in this passage that's so amazing is this, that Jesus not only disagrees with that kind of thinking, he confronts it. He's confrontational about it. You see, the Bible teaches a tremendous, marvelous truth, and that is this, that all people stand before God with equal value and identical worth. We see that at the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, we are told something that is so important, and that is that all people are made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, the start of things, says that God creates people as his image bearers. And what that means is that in some way that's still kind of mysterious to us, we resemble God somehow. Think of a coin for just a second. Um, Let's say it's a quarter. A quarter is made out of an alloy, which is just a mixture of metals. And if you take just that simple alloy, it's not worth very much at all. But When it is stamped with the image of George Washington, all of a sudden, that little piece of metal takes on new meaning and value and significance. And what we're told in the Bible is that in the same way, our souls have been stamped with the image of our Creator, and that as a result, every human life is entrenched with dignity and with worth. And it's not because of what a person does or how they contribute to society. What the Bible would teach, they are valuable because they are made by and loved by God. In other words, what God would say is that value is not earned. It's assigned. And that God has assigned it to every person. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, the psalmist says. And so the biblical ethic is that no human life is worth more or less than any other human life. No person is either more valuable or more disposable than anyone else. And that goes for race, for gender, physical and mental capacity. And especially here, what we see is Jesus teaching this about age. And so the tiniest fetus in a womb is of equal value to the woman who carries him. The teenager who flips our burgers is of equal value to the one who owns the franchise. Prime ministers and presidents are of equal value to prostitutes and prisoners. The rich, the famous, the beautiful, those with big personalities are worth no more than the disabled, the mentally ill, the homeless, the convalescent. What it teaches is that you and I are not better than anyone else. But on the flip side, we're not less than anyone else either. And this is something that our world, with us included, struggles with so deeply. I mean, we are constantly making judgments about people, aren't we? We're constantly comparing ourselves. We we do it without thinking. We measure. We weigh. We calculate. 
and then we assign a person rank. But not Jesus. Jesus treated every person, no matter who they were, with dignity and respect. And he was offended at the suggestion that his disciples would do anything different from that. And that's that word, indignant. To be indignant means to be angry, okay? It means to be upset. You might translate that as Jesus being thoroughly annoyed. He's miffed at his disciples. And the interesting twist of the story is that here, the disciples rebuke these parents, and Jesus, in turn, rebukes the disciples for their rebuke. And he says, listen, guys, what are you doing? He says, let the kids come to me. Don't you realize that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these? What Jesus was saying is this, that in God's kingdom, nobody, nobody is a second-class citizen. And Jesus said to the disciples, so treat them that way. Now, can you imagine being one of those kids? That would be an experience you'd remember, right? Your, your parents are chewed out publicly by the disciples. You're, you're sent away. You, you feel as if you don't make the cut. And then all of a sudden, Jesus calls you back to sit on his lap. He chews out the people who have just chewed out your parents. And Jesus says, no, no, I want you with me. I want you to come to me. What a surprise that would be. And I can just imagine the kids' expressions as they make eye contact with the disciples as they come up to Jesus, you know? They're they're kind of saying, in your face, guys, you know? (laughs) That would have been great. And can you imagine what that experience would have been like for those parents who were so hopeful that Jesus would just touch their kids? You know, you can tell a lot about a person by how they treat children, Um, You can tell a lot about Jesus by how he treated children. But you can also tell a lot about a church by the way that they treat children too. And what we want to be here at Grace is a place that sees value in every single person. Because God does. And that when a child attends here, if we can treat them with dignity and respect if we can treat them as good as we would treat anybody else, value their opinions and ideas and listen to them, give them our time and attention like Jesus did even when we're busy, at some point what our hope is is that they would eventually say to themselves, just as my son did on Thursday, you know what? I matter to these people. And that they would not stop there, but that that would lead them to believe if I matter to these people Maybe I matter to God, too. Because the thing is, they really do. This passage wouldn't be here if they didn't. And this passage would not be restated three times if God didn't really mean it. Children are equally valuable as anybody else. And Jesus not only spoke those words, but but he lived it out. Well, we hope to be that kind of a place here as well. Second thing that we learn and the second thing that we want to apply as a church family is that children should be brought to Jesus and not sent anyplace else. Okay, This is a priority for Jesus, and it should be a priority for us. In fact, it really ought to be the number one priority for families and for churches. Now, parenting is an incredibly difficult job, obviously. 
parents are trying to balance so many things at one time, and they start out in their parenting just helping their kids to function basically in life, right? They, they teach them how to eat and how to walk and how to talk and get dressed. They potty train them. They're constantly trying to help them not to pick things. Um, about age one and a half, children discover they have a nose and that there's holes in it, and, and um, they like to use it. And so you just got to tell them again and again. There's always stuff to remind kids about. As they grow up, parents are trying to teach them to listen and to obey, how to relate uh, the difference between right and wrong. They're thinking through education, math, and science, and social studies, all of those things. And there's so many things that a parent has to navigate when it comes to raising kids with the hope that someday their kids will be mature and responsible and fully functioning adults who are well-adjusted in our society. But it requires from a parent wearing like a hundred different hats that are constantly shifting and changing. And sometimes what happens in parenting, I feel it in my own parenting, that in all the hustle and bustle, sometimes the things that get missed are the most important things. And like those parents back in that day who brought their children to Jesus, we're we're told in Scripture that we should too, that that's a parenting priority. Now, believe it or not, sometimes this gets missed in churches too, okay? And in fact, I, I have to admit, I've missed this sometimes even as a pastor. You know, at, at Grace, we believe that the Bible is a book that is primarily about Jesus. It's a book that's primarily about a person. And yet sometimes it can be taught as if it's primarily about doing what's right. Sometimes we can accidentally spend all of our time as pastors and teachers and leaders telling people how to stop doing the wrong things and telling them how to start doing the right things. And there's nothing wrong in and of itself, teaching people about wrong things and right things. But the problem with that is where it leads and ends up and sometimes what's being missed, okay? Give me just a minute to go down that trail a bit. I want to give you an example. Let's say that I am teaching fourth graders on the topic of lying. And I've got my outline to teach them. Every outline has three points, it seems like. And um, so I've got my three points. My first point to teach them is that lying is harmful to you. Okay, So it's harmful to a person's conscience. Your lying hurts you. My second point is lying is harmful to others. And my third point is that lying is harmful to your relationship with God. It, It hurts that. And so let's say that the conclusion of my message in so many words is, so quit lying. Stop doing the wrong thing. Or let's say I'm teaching on something different. Okay, Let's say I'm teaching on something that's a bit more positive. I'm teaching on, on the passage where Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so again, I go to the fourth graders with my three-point outline. And the first point is, our neighbors are the people who are all around us. And my second point is, our neighbors need what we have. And my third point is, we should do for our neighbors exactly what we would want our neighbors to do for ourselves. And so let's say that the conclusion of my message is, so go and love your neighbor. Start doing the thing that's right. Okay. In one, I'm telling them, don't do the wrong thing. In the other, I'm telling them, do the right thing. Now, there's nothing wrong with those messages in one sense. 
sense. The content is fine. It's biblical. But there is a problem. And the problem is not with the content. It is with the conclusion. Because in both cases, I have left those fourth graders with the idea that it's up to them to either stop something or to start something. And you know what people feel in that case? They, they tend to feel guilt and they tend to feel pressure. I, I was at a church service recently, not our church, but I heard a pastor speaking and he had his three-point outline too. And it was a good message, but I, I found myself during the speaking when he said the first point, thinking some version of this. First point, I thought, you know what? He's right, I'm probably not doing that enough. And then he got to the second point, and I thought, well, I'm doing okay in that area, but I could probably do better. And then I evaluated myself on his third point, and I thought, man, I definitely need to work on that. And then the pastor prayed. He closed the service. We went home. I got into my car, and I, I, I felt, I mean, I mean, this was very recent, I, I felt in my heart like this burden and this pressure and I remember where I was, where I thought to myself, you know what, I, I got to get it in gear. Now, you may say, well, well, what's wrong with that? You know, I mean, doesn't the Bible teach that we really should get it in gear sometimes? Well, yes, it does, and no, it doesn't, right? The, the Bible is very clear on the things that we have done that we shouldn't. And it's also very clear on the things that we aren't doing that we should do it diagnoses the problems of the human heart very well. But here's the thing. The Bible never, ever suggests that it's up to us to solve our problems on our own. Instead, what the Bible points to again and again is that Jesus is the one who carries our burdens and our pressure. The Bible teaches is that what I've done wrong or what I'm currently doing wrong, the solution to that is not just for me to stop doing it. But that what I need is I need to know that Jesus wants to forgive it. The Bible would teach that, that what I need is I need to taste his grace. I need to taste his mercy. I need to know that Jesus cares. And I need to know that he is the one who sets me free from all the ways that I've failed and fallen, not me. That the burden, the pressure of my sin and guilt that feels at times like it is so heavy and unbearable, the Bible would teach he's the one who lifts it. He's the one who carries it. He's the one who defeated it on that cross. And that what I can have in my burden in my pressure, when I bring it to him, it is a clean slate. I can have a, a fresh start. I can be made new. Jesus forgives all that I've done wrong. And not only that, that with all the things that I should be doing right, the Bible is so clear, Jesus has to empower those things. I don't just go out and pull myself up by the bootstraps and do those things alone. I can't. It's not up to me to do that. We spent a whole month looking at the passage um, that, where Jesus talks about, I am the vine and you are the branches. And there's one sentence that he says in there that's absolutely stunning. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. 
And what he was saying is that if I am not the fuel behind your life, if I am not empowering you, then you cannot do anything on, on your own. And he's saying, so I want you to walk with me. I want you to stay close with me. I want you to remain in me so that I can be the fuel behind all that you do. See, sometimes it accidentally gets communicated that we're supposed to just be God's servants, right? That's not really just what God is interested in. What he's interested in is sons and and daughters. He's interested in, in people who will walk with him intimately and relate with him. And so what I'm getting at is this. It's not always bad to feel pressure and burden. The Bible does put that on us. But it's only meant to lead us to Jesus. And it is only in Jesus that we find peace and joy and help and relief and a newfound kind of power. Okay? Now, I said all of that to say this. At Grace Church, we want our kids to grow up knowing what they should and shouldn't do. We really do. It isn't that we somehow... Just think about those things, and and we don't have to help them think about what's right and wrong. But here's the thing. From the Bible, we also understand that just knowing right and wrong does not give a person the power to actually accomplish it. And that if we sidestep all that Jesus has done and is doing, then what we're teaching them may be true, but it is not complete. Um, Growing up, we all remember this, or we see it as we watch people grow up, is so tough. Uh, I had an opportunity last week to teach our middle school program during the second service. I kind of fill in for Devin every so often, and I was just kind of looking around at people, and and, um, I thought later to myself, you know, you you couldn't pay me anything to get me to go back and be in middle school again. I I don't want to redo that time. Um, Our middle school group is called Crossroads, sixth through eighth grade, and and I was thinking last week, that's the perfect name for that group. Because every single student who is in that room is at a crossroads. Every single one of those kids is trying to decide who they're going to be and what they're going to believe. Every single one of them is asking the question, what do I think about God? Every single one of them is asking themselves, am I going to adopt the faith of my parents? Do I really trust that that's true? Do I actually believe what I've been told? They're struggling with the question, can I own my own faith? And there are all kinds of influences in our world that are trying to shape them and give them a certain kind of identity. It is such a tough age of life. This past week, we, we do this occasionally, maybe once a year or so, is we have kind of an ask anything day where they can write down questions, whatever they want, throw them in a hat, and then one of the leaders that happened to meet me last week would just draw them out and answer them. And one of the questions that came up, a, a person asked, um, how do I stay committed to God through these years? And it was a really good question, and I think there's a really good answer to it. Uh, the, the answer is that we tend to be committed to the things that we love. We tend to be committed to the things that we love. The people in your life that you're committed to tend to be the people that you love. The things that you spend your time at tend to be the things that you love. We are committed to things that we love. Now, if with those junior hires, all that we give them is just a system of rules for living, 
if we bring them to a list of what's right and what's wrong and we tell them, okay, now go out and do these things, if we're just trying to shape their behavior to get them to start doing certain things and to quit doing other things, all of those things might be important, but none of them will ever be enough. And the reason is because none of those things will inspire within those teenagers love. We don't love lists of right and and wrong. We don't love doing certain behaviors. What we want to inspire within them is love. We want them to see that Jesus is their rescuer. That he is the great king who gave up his throne, all of the majesty and glory of heaven, and that he came into this world that he created. To the people that he created, that he stamped in his image, not just to teach us how to live, but to rescue us, to save us from our sin. That he came so that he could bring us safely home to his kingdom. And when those kids in in that room, in the crossroads room right now, inevitably fail at life, when they inevitably find that life is so much harder, it's so much more painful, it never works out the way we think it's going to work out, that when that happens, what they would see in Christ is someone who is a hope to them, a help to them, an anchor to them in trouble and in suffering, which will inevitably come. We want to help them not just to learn to obey Jesus. That's important. But we want to help them to love him. We're committed to the things that we love. And this story in the book of Mark is such a great visual for parents. It's such a great visual for those who work in our children's ministry. Because what we're meant to do is we're meant to become like the parents in that story, ushering our kids to Jesus, right? And there will be all kinds of barriers, like the disciples, that will try to keep them away. But what we know is that Jesus will always receive them, that Jesus will always love them. And so what we try to do as a church and try to do as parents is to bring our kids to Jesus, to help them to learn who he is so that they might love him. Well, finally, we learn in this passage Jesus tells us this, that not only do adults have some things to teach the kids, but the kids have a few things to teach us adults too. They can teach us old dogs some new tricks. Um, I hear this all the time around here from children's workers and from youth leaders. They will often say, you know, I've gained a lot more in my work with these groups than I've given. They've, They've taught me more than I've taught them. And so what Jesus is saying here is that we should teach our children about Jesus, but we should also let them teach us about Jesus too. He says it works both ways. So what is it that these kids are trying to show us? What is it that we see so clearly in children? Well, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Okay, so those who enter God's children are childlike in some way. So what is it that children have naturally that adults don't? Well, let's think about that this morning. Is it innocence? Uh, no, it's not innocence. Anyone who thinks that children are innocent has never spent any time with a child. 
my son was cramming cookies in his mouth this morning. That's not innocent. Is it humility that children have that adults don't by nature? No, I don't think so either. I think most children see themselves as sort of the sun that the planets revolve around. <laughs> humility is not natural. You know what I think it is? He doesn't tell us here exactly, but um, I think it's trust. Children have a natural, unsophisticated, simple, effortless trust. I have a lot of memories for some reason from when I was a kid, and one of those memories is that in downtown Milford, the Kroger used to give away free balloons to kids. Those were the good old days, you know, back when a kid could get a free balloon. And um, what happened to me is I was there with my mom. They gave me a balloon, and when I walked it outside to, into the parking lot, I let go of it accidentally, and it went up in the air. And it was like torment, you know, because I could watch it go, 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 and, and I drove home. Well, a uh, second time, I was there with my father in Kroger, and my father didn't take me there very much. But it's, it stands out to me that they gave me uh, another free balloon, and I said to my dad, Dad, it's going to fly away. When I go outside, it's going to fly away. Can you hold it? Can you hold it? And he said, well, let me just you know, wrap it around your wrist, and, I'm, and it'll be fine. You can walk outside. And I said, no, Dad, I'm going to lose it. I'm going to lose it. And I remember him taking my balloon, and he held it and walked it out to the car. And I, I remember just feeling so confident, like, yes, this balloon is going to make it home because Dad has got it. I think that's some of what Jesus meant here. Is he said, when it comes to salvation, children teach us what it means to trust. And, and Jesus invites adults to enjoy the same sort of trust with him as kids do with their parents. That's the way that we receive the kingdom of heaven. We do it with a childlike faith. The, the kingdom of God is not for a person who can handle everything on their own. A person can do all the good works in the world. But Jesus would say, it isn't about that. The kingdom of heaven is for a person who trusts God to do the work to bring them to heaven himself. It's for needy people who need God's forgiveness, who need to depend on him. It's for people who believe that my salvation is safer with Jesus than it is with me. If it's with me, I'm going to mess it all up. If it's up to me to hold on to this thing, I'm certain to let it go. But when it comes to my sin, and when it comes to keeping my soul, I know that I can trust Jesus with that. And, and that's true in everything. People have a lot of worries. People have a lot of things that they are concerned about. And Jesus invites us to trust him with those things, just like a child trusts their parent, and to believe that it's safe in his hands. And part of why God gives us children, Jesus says, is to remind us of that, so that we might trust him as they trust us. Well, the passage ends um, in a really great way. Uh, Jesus picks up these um, children, you know, the disciples are kind of looking down over in a different spot. And, and the Bible says that Jesus picks them up in his arms and he blesses them. And the word blessing in this sentence, I did a little bit of lookup on what it means, is it's used to express warm-hearted emotion. 
or what Mark said was that Jesus picked them up and he felt warm-hearted emotion. He was moved by them. And uh, I think that when we feel that same way towards either our children or as a church, the, the children that we work with, uh, it's a really good sign. I want to just end um, with something that happened two weeks ago in this service that I thought was really neat. Um, we uh, had a person, a young man in our church whose name is Tim Gilo, he's about 19 years old, decide to go to, for uh, the summer to Mexico to work at an orphanage. And we wanted to send him off and pray for him as a church. He's just a great guy, and he's been a part of our church for a while. He teaches our starting line program, which is fourth and, and fifth grade. And uh, somebody had the idea, well, let's see if a couple of the starting liners would want to pray for them. Remember this? Some of you remember this? You were here. And so two boys volunteered to do it. One, one's name was Wyatt Steck, and so he prayed um, for Tim, and he did a great job. And then he passed the um, microphone to a boy named Andrew, who's in fourth grade. And um, Andrew has attended here with his mother, whose name is Kathy, for three years. And, and Kathy is just such a wonderful woman. I hope you've had a chance to meet her. Well, what happened was when Wyatt passed his microphone over to Andrew, there was sort of this long pause. Some of you might remember this. And I wasn't sure if it was a problem with the mic or maybe if Andrew got nervous or something like that. But uh, as it turned out, Andrew said this short but incredibly heartfelt and sincere prayer for Tim. You know, it was really neat. And um, so, you know, that happened, and I was going to speak, so I, I, you know, my mind kind of jumped to what was coming next. But the people who were in the room, their minds didn't jump that way. And what happened was there was applause, right? Everybody started applauding. Sometimes when groups applaud, you can tell that it's nice applause, you know, or like that's the thing that we should do. We're supposed to applaud or, hey, that was cute, so we should clap now kind of a thing. But you know what it felt like? Mary Kay and I talked about this a little, a little bit later. It, it felt like at that moment that the people in this room were cheering for him. It felt like the people in this room were celebrating this kid. And, and I heard later that Andrew went running after the service to his mom, and he said, guess what happened? Guess what happened? And um, Kathy later told me, she said, you know, I, I know that God blesses me and all of us every day. But today, I feel it a little more than usual. That was such a neat thing. And, and I appreciate you all clapping for him and cheering him on so much. Wouldn't it be wonderful if every kid who attends our church, including yours, if you have any, experienced what Andrew did? If they experienced that the people in this church family were rooting for them, that we were moved by their hearts and lives, that we were for them and behind them, that we don't feel that they're second-class citizens at all, but that they're as valuable and important to us as anybody else. And that we long for them not just to know the rules, but to, to love the Lord. And, and that they would feel that, that we feel that there's something important that we that they can contribute and that we can learn from them. And that's what this passage is all about. There is nobody who has ever honored and loved children the way that Jesus does. And here's the thing. There's so many kids around here. You can't miss it. 
and to think that Jesus loves our kids just as much as he loved those kids who came to him all those years ago is an amazing thing. Jesus welcomes every child to himself. And we ought to really be glad for that. Let's pray. Father, thank you um, again for this amazing passage that tells us how wonderful your son is. It tells us of his genuine love and care for every person, even some of those who aren't generally viewed as important or valuable. We know that that's true for every person here. We know that every person in this room and every person in the nursery and the toddler room and children's ministry and student ministries that meet throughout the, the building right now is known and loved by you, that they have been stamped with your image. And we just pray that this church would be a place where our children would really experience that, that this would be a place that would be so different from the world where they would know that no matter who they are or what they do or what mistakes they might make or what places they might feel inadequate in, that, that they are loved deeply and genuinely by you. We pray that you might help us to be a church who loves you deeply and that our kids might catch that and experience from us that and long for that themselves too. Thank you for a group of people I know here that, that wants to be like that and, and thank you that I see that so often in so many ways around this church, including two weeks ago. We um, pray that you would help us to love you more, to love our children more, and um, that you might empower that work. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.